the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. It's a delight to welcome to the show. He's been on before, but it's been an awfully long time, and uh, that's uh, that's on me, someone uh, I have known for many, many years and read and learned from, Sadnan Dume. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute as well as a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. His piece today, important reading, at the Democracy Summit, Biden bungles again. Sadnan, welcome back. How are you, sir? Good to be back, Fed. Thank you. It's, well. it's yeah, it's lovely. I'm trying to remember when we first met. It probably was around 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. Does that sound about right? Over in over in California, I think it was. Yeah, it, it, it may even have been before that. It may have been 2012, if I'm not. Familiar. Oh, was it that early? You may be right. Yeah, that's, when we were fellows together. Yes, that's right. Well, I have to first compliment you on your column, which is very well written. Uh, that's the first compliment. The second is um, I didn't even know about the Summit for Democracy, and, and that's on me. How, how big a deal is this uh, in, in, in the Washington foreign policy circles right now, Saad? Well, it's certainly something that people uh, who follow democracy have been keeping an eye on. You know, uh, Joe Biden, when he was running for president, he wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs where he spoke about uh, reclaiming America's leadership role and holding this this summit for democracy. So it's something that he's been talking around about for a long time, and so you know it's a, it's a fairly big deal. I think Good. people people are aware of it. People know about it. And and what they're learning from it uh, might be some of the wrong things. Is is if that's a fair thing to to take away from your column? Is that a fair thing to take away from your column? I mean, these aren't just democracies that are involved in the democracy summit, and we're leaving out th- countries that could be democracies, yeah? Or are democracies. Yeah, so, you know, that in a nutshell, my argument is this. I think it is perfectly apt for the U.S. to promote democracy. Uh, we are in a contest with China. It's an authoritarian country. It's a communist dictatorship. And China is in many ways a bigger threat than any threat that we faced before, simply because of its economic and technological prowess. Uh, the Soviet Union had technological prowess when it came to the military, but beyond that, they had a pretty backward economy, right. even at their peak. Right. The Chinese have a more sophisticated economy. It is about 60% of, of U.S. GDP. We haven't had a peer competitor that had such a high percentage of our GDP. Um, and so it, it, it is... It makes a lot of sense for us to champion democracy around the world. My problem is that this is not the way to do it. So the general idea is a good idea, but the execution, as with much else in Biden foreign policy, uh, is utterly shambolic. Yeah, shambolic. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Did you create that word? That's pretty good. I had not heard that before. Uh, I think a big part of your piece, the sentence that grabbed me, Sadnan, if I might, is where you write, you have to ignore history to believe that America can contain China by adopting a hard-bitten realism 
that's indifferent to ideology. It's as if you can have a normal foreign policy or set of foreign relations with a country, but if they are a country whose governmental and, 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 and governing model is based on Leninism or Maoism or Marxist-Leninism, uh, and if you divorce all of that from the country's aspirations, goals, and interests, you're missing probably 80% of the most important stuff, I would say. And that's what I oh, fear our problem is with China. We, un- we, we, we forget that they are a country of a strong ideology, too, maybe stronger than our own. Absolutely. And the thing is that we really, if we were to just sit back and sit on our hands, uh, China will change our lives. Right? You yep. already have a situation where we have basketball players who are scared to talk about the Hong Kong protests. We have Hollywood stars who are scared to talk about what's happening with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Yep. We have uh, we have movies where the Taiwanese flag is airbrushed. Yep. This stuff is real. It's not yep. hypothetical. Yep. So when you when you have a country that is as large and as resurgent as China economically, they are going to change the way we live, the way we speak, and the way we think. So it is absolutely in our interest to ensure that that doesn't happen because it affects our own lives, but it also affects the lives of our, our, of our friends and allies around the world. So we do have to push back. You, um, in your column, Sadnan, you uh, talk about a few different organizations, I think, that, you know, rate countries and democracies and their commitments to them. Freedom House has been a standard one for many years. Are we going through, are we looking at a democracy deficit in the world? Is democracy on the rise or or on the recess right now? Democracy has been receding for about 15 years. Okay. And so, you know, around 1991, with the end of the Cold War, we saw this the so-called third wave of democratization. So uh, most prominently, of course, in Eastern Europe, but in many other places, too. Uh, you remember that famous phrase from the Francis Fukuyama essay, The End of History? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was a rush, and you had many countries that had not been democratic rushing towards embracing some form of democracy. Uh, Over the past 15 years, we've seen a recession, and that recession takes two forms. Um, On the one hand, you had countries that looked to be democratizing, but have now certainly gone back and gone in the opposite direction. Russia is a very prominent example of that. Um, And then you have the issue of countries that may still sort of formally be democracies in the sense that they may have elections, but you see that they have eroded freedom of the press, they have uh, harassed or locked up or intimidated the opposition. Um, so these are sort of countries where um, the or places like the Philippines, where the government encourages death squads. Yep. So these are places where the they may still have elections, but the quality of democracy has deteriorated rapidly. So that's why you know people talk about this democratic deficit. And this isn't something that just happened a year ago or two years right. ago or five years ago. It's been going on for 15 years. Sadnan, we're talking to Sadnan Dume from the American Enterprise Institute and the Wall Street Journal. His piece today uh, about the democracy uh, summit uh, at the democracy summit, Biden bungles again. Sadnan, is it fair or is it overly romantic for me to say that democracy movements around the world and the forces that put, move countries into more democratic reforms from from positions of less democracy, those come and go, those 
you know, to use your words, recede or or grow based on how strong a commitment the United States is sticking up for its own role in the world, its own place in the world and its own ideology. Is that is that fair or is that unfair? I think it's perfectly fair. And and it is romantic, but something can be romantic and, and still be true. Okay. Right, as 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 you know, as as you know, Reagan used to say, this this country has been a shining city on a hill, and that's simply a fact. And if you've sort of you know spoken with um, a dissident in any country where democracy is being suppressed or has been suppressed, if you've talked to say Uyghur dissidents or or Tibetan monks who are oppressed by the Chinese, um, they will tell you that when they look around the world for inspiration, they look to the United States. Um, this is a country that has had democracy from the very start. Uh, it's a country that you know we take a, we we take we we have our flaws, of course, but it's a country that has been traditionally been a beacon of hope. Um, and this is what happened in our contest with the Nazis, and this is what happened in our contest with the Soviet Union. And so, if the U.S. is not uh, showcasing its democracy, and if the U.S. is not engaged in this battle of ideas, then the forces of authoritarianism, in this case the forces of of Chinese authoritarianism, are going to find it much, much easier. And that's just a reality of the world we live in. You know, that's a beautiful point you're making in historical reference. I like to talk about sometimes when you see dissident movements, real dissident movements going up against real tyrannies like in Tehran in 2009 or certainly uh, what you have seen in Hong Kong or even before that Tiananmen, they do march with and and talk about American iconography. Um, in the in the cold in the days of the Cold War, uh, we know about the dissidents, right? Who would tap out messages of Ronald Reagan's speeches, and uh, and 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 I always loved that. And what you're telling me is the dissidents of today, even in places like China, that's still true. They're still looking to us, not as just the last best hope, really, but maybe the only hope. No, absolutely. I mean, there's no, there is. It's no coincidence, right, that the students at Tiananmen Square they have the effigy yep. uh, of the Statue of Liberty, yeah. And 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 that that has been uh, the U.S. role. And the problem is that we have many people, in, um, especially on the left in 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 the U.S., who maybe because they've only ever lived in a free country, um, they take some of this stuff for granted. And I'm not saying that our democracy or that the U.S. democracy is perfect or that there are no problems. All I'm saying is that if you take the long view and you look historically, the U.S. has been a beacon of freedom for the world. And as we face the challenge of a rising China, that is the role that the U.S. is called to play, on, play again. You uh, you end your column with a point uh, from uh, Professor Hal Brands say, saying the U.S. will need to fashion a containment a containment policy for China, as it did for the Soviet Union, uh, and that 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 came to its that came to its final uh, its final chapter uh, under Ronald Reagan's authorship, didn't it? And he was someone who did what we started this interview with. He was one of the few who actually did take the ideology of the Soviet Union seriously. His predecessor was famous for saying that we had an inordinate fear of communism. Ronald Reagan was famous for saying, maybe we don't fear it enough. Is that a fair way to read this? Yeah, I mean, Reagan, obviously, his role was instrumental, right? His famous words, tear down this wall. 
But if you were to sort of, you know, step back and 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 take the longer view, I actually think that it the United States was successful starting from the late 1940s, mm-hmm. where the U.S. figured out, and and this is true of Democrats and Republicans, the U.S. figured out that the Soviet system was inefficient, their economy was a mess, they had too many internal contradictions. The people were not happy. If people could get out, they would get out. And they realized that if we push back, if we don't let them expand, if we challenge their ideas at every step, ultimately our system is stronger than their system, and they're going to be they're they're going to we are going to prevail. And that and that's a calculation that was you know made over four decades. Reagan came to, towards the end of it, and Reagan did a, and, and did a, played a stellar role in pushing at that moment where the Soviets ex- overextended themselves. He played a big role, but we have to give the credit to generations of U.S. foreign policy thinkers and U.S. statesmen and presidents of both parties who had that foresight and That's had it. that insight. Right. That's the point. At the end of the day, you have to have an American president that believes in the force and power of the of, of the ideology behind the country he represents, too. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? Absolutely. You need to have a uh, you, you know, you can't have what Gene Kirkpatrick used to call blame America firsters. Yeah. Right. You can't have and, and, and it's fine to have be self-critical. In fact, I think that's one of the beauties of living in a democracy. Of course. We get to criticize our own country. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't lose perspective, right? Yep. I see people out there on Twitter and on social media saying that, well, the U.S. has no right to talk about democracy, and we're really no different from uh, China or Russia or uh, Iran or any of these countries. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> that is, that's the most ridiculous thing I've heard. <laughs> Sadnan Dume, this has been a great conversation, and it's good to be back in touch with you. I loved your column. I think it's pregnant with a lot of meaning. And what I'll tell people is read his column and then go read the profile of Norman Putt Horitz, and you'll learn a lot. That's also on the Wall Street Journal, uh, at least online version today. Sadnan, God bless you, sir. It was great, great catching up and great being in touch again. It was a pleasure. Good, good to be good ha- Have to a wonderful weekend. Yes, you, you too. We'll make it. We'll do it again soon, sooner than uh, the interregnum between our last visits. I'm Seth Liebson. Open lo- lines Friday. The rest of the show, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Yeah, there's another guy I've seen in concert more than once. I was thinking of people I've seen in concert more than once, and just ironically, the Monkees were one of them. Once in 1987, 86 or so, 87, and then a couple months ago, thinking about that with uh, the passing of uh, Mike uh, Mike Nesmith. And uh, Chuck, uh, other than that, it would have been trumpet players, uh, lead, you know, um, uh, musicians who who I had seen more than once. That was Chuck Mangio, and I would have seen him probably, oh gosh, I don't know how many times, four or five times probably. Um, back to political uh, philosophy and, pol- and the fo- philosophy of politics. So I was mentioning in the first hour, I just made mention it in the uh, closing interview with Sadnan Dume, uh, that scholar, writer, editor Norman Podhoritz is being profiled in uh, the Wall Street Journal on the opinion page today. And uh, as I said earlier, he's been a tre- tremendous influence in my thinking, my writing, and everything else. I've been privileged to know him, although we haven't been in touch. 
they're interviewing him. He's now 91. And he says uh, they're asking him about Donald Trump and his views on Donald Trump because many were surprised to find he was supportive of Donald Trump. Many thought he would be closer to probably your Jonah Goldbergs and Bill Crystals, uh, just given the nature of uh, the uh, the way he looked at uh, conservatism. And Norman Podhoretz says, I was to begin with anti-anti-Trump. Anti-anti-Trump. So in other words, against <laughs> your Bill Crystals and Jonah Goldbergs and that crowd. You know what? That's unfair to just Bill and, and Jonah. You know, it was a the entirety of National Review, I have to tell you. Do you remember that against Trump editorial that they wrote? It was the entirety of National Review for a while. And then maybe four or five people over there changed their minds. Um, in any way, in any event, Norman Porthoritz writes, I was to begin with anti-anti-Trump. I was not crazy about the guy. I'd never met him. I've still never met him. But I thought the animosity against him was way out of proportion and, on the right, a big mistake. So I went from anti-anti-Trump to pro-Trump. I still think, and it's been the same fight going on in my lifetime since I would say 1965, I still think there's only one question in politics. Is America good or is America bad? This is what Norman gets. You've heard me tell the story that um, Allen Ginsberg was in Norman Podhoritz's house many years ago in the 60s, and they were debating politics, and Norman wasn't buying it. And Allen Ginsberg, the beat poet, said, well, we'll get you through your children. A volume was spoken there because that's where the left went. The left wasn't, as it was in the 60s, and 70s that interested in taking down GE or international telephone and telegraph. I mean, yes, that was that was the signal and that was that was the flash. That was where it was flashy. And that's where they could get news by holding protests, at you know, nuclear power plants and in front of major American corporations. But they knew the left knew that for them to have a sustainable ideological – to become a st- sustainable ideological force in America, that they, they needed the schools. They needed the kids. They needed, they needed a, an investment in the future, if you will, which is why they did, as Ellen ben Ginsburg say, try to get us through our children and, and, and go into the schools. Um, it, look, about, look, look at how smart they were about that by working more wholesale than retail – they didn't need to take down GE in those days. They didn't need to take down International Telephone and Telegraph. They didn't need to take down all those major corporations that that they were that they were talking about. Because look at them now; those corporations are run by the people who were in the schools that the left took over. They got not only the schools; they got the schools and the corporations, and the invented corporations that even the younger generations now run. Anyway, that's just a piece of this uh, profile of Norman Podhoritz. I want to talk about it a little more with you. But, of course, welcome your calls, too, if you want to weigh in on anything. 602-508-0960. 
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I'm going through this profile of uh, Norman Podhoritz because he's singing the song of my people here. <clears throat> no surprise, I, 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 he was a big part of my instruction uh, uh, growing up. And he was just talking about what he said in the Wall Street Journal here. What he said was uh, the only important question in politics is America good or bad? Is it a force for good in the world or is it not? Now, before I go further, let's pause on that just a moment because a lot of people will remember when the Democrats used to say, don't question my patriotism. Don't question my patriotism. And it got odd somewhere, probably around the year 2017, where patriotism, they used to say don't – they used to be angry if, if, if it was perceived that someone was questioning a Democrat's patriotism. I remember any number of presidential and vice presidential debates in those in, – in, in the campaigns prior to 2016 where Democrats would say that from Dukakis to Jerry Ferraro forward. They would say things like I resent your questioning or your implied questioning of my patriotism. They didn't like it. They thus, by implication, right, thought patriotism was a good thing. Today, it's odd, isn't it, that someone will look at you or talk to you and think patriotism is a bad thing. Oh, are you a patriot? Someone, some liberal buddy of mine was sitting down with me after not seeing me for a while and asked me, are, are you a patriot? I didn't miss a beat. I just said, aren't we all? Aren't we all? Regardless of your political affiliation, Democrat, Republican, aren't we all? Democrats used to say, don't question my patriotism. I don't know how it got to be a negative word. It shouldn't be. Anyway, on that point, on that point that Norman Podhoritz is making, is America a force for good in the world or is it not? The problem we have had with Democrats who say – I'll be stronger about that. The problem we've had with Democrats who give lip service to America, there are many who mean it. But listen when they talk. Are they talking about how America is good in and of itself? Are they talking about how America is good for others? Or is there only praise for America how it is good for themselves, for their special interests or their special pleas? Of course, ringing in my mind, as I'm sure yours listening, is the notion of Michelle Obama's, that until her husband won the primary, she had never been proud to be an American. You know where you're getting this? A lot from now in the last 48, 72 hours, Hillary Clinton, this whole this this whole masterclass that she was teaching on resiliency, it was uh, it was delivered. The masterclass was delivered, I guess, yesterday. Uh, It was written up a bunch the day before. And then today, all the typical precincts that you can think of and imagine were praising her. For this great class she gave. What was the class she gave? What was the biggest part of it? 
She decided to deliver the speech that she would have delivered had she run, excuse me, had she won the presidency. She does, that's what she gave, that's what her class in large part was. The speech that she never gave on um, the day after the election in 2016. Her victory speech, in other words. We all know she gave a concession speech. She had a victory speech ready. She couldn't give it because she didn't win. And so um, in the master class on resiliency, she gave the victory speech as if we have been waiting for it for lo these five years. And when you go through it, you find something rather interesting. All her praise about America has to do with praise for her abilities and her successes and her pet interests. It's a really interesting thing. Now, I get that perhaps her presidency was a was it was a record thing because she was the first female nominee leading a ticket. But if we're being honest, did we really think that America was not willing to vote for a woman to become president of the United States? Did we really think that? Let me try it this way. If we can elect an African-American person president twice, could we not elect a woman by, by dint of the same effort of being an American? Is there more racism or more sexism in America? That's a good question. I think I have my answer, but it isn't one Hillary will like. A lot of fun happens uh, on the commercial breaks sometimes. (laughs) And I was telling my producer and uh, Rusty and Anthony's boss, Bill, that one of the things that's always fun, a little game I play with myself coming into the the, uh, show when I come in the studio every day is trying to figure out what's on Bill's mind because it's always something I would not predict. I've never been able to predict, and I was telling him that, and he said, most days it's just nothing. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's not true. It's not true. I'll get back to this issue in a moment. That's actually – I have a few issues now I want to get back to, including discrimination discrimination against women or racial minorities. What's greater in America? We'll, we'll deal with all of that momentarily. But first, Mike in Maricopa. Hi, Mike. Oh, boy, Seth. Good afternoon. You've certainly stacked that plate, boy. I, I know. We've put a there. lot of heavy <laughs> stuff together here, haven't we? Some heavy and some light. Little of both. There we go. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting that you mentioned that. The, you know why... What would why you, I, by the way, what would be your opinion? Do you think there's more racism in America or more sexism? Neither. I... I I know, I know it's I, I overstated. Think, I, think, I know all of it's overstated. But if you think one was worse in America than the other, you think it's about the same? I, well, if I had to, I would say sexism. You do think but, there's more uh, sexism. Interesting. I, I okay. think so. All right. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I, don't, I, think, I think we've moved way beyond this racism stuff. And, and there's some people that want to glom onto it for political purposes and make it into something as in some of the events that have happened in the last couple of days. Sure. Uh, yeah, I just... I'm with you. I, I yeah, hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. I, I just uh, I just choose not to go there. Okay, and, you know, be it back in the seventies when I went through basic, they explained to us that there's no white, there's no black, there's no brown. We're all green, and that's what it is. 
and yeah, there there have been problems, of course, yeah, etc. But let's just move on from there, okay? You betcha, but there's some people out there that all they want to do is capitalize that and use it for gain or leverage or something. Yeah, I like know. There's always been an investment in bringing America down, and that's 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 the chief use of it. It's it's unfortunate, but anyway, I know you didn't call on that, so I apologize for. No, Go ahead. No. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because you're talking about the deal. And one of the reasons I really like your broadcast, it's because that you're not all serious all the time. Like in the middle of the week, we can have people who call in and want to talk about songs that have historical events or meanings to it. Or yeah. we can have a discussion of about love song versus breakup songs and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And, you know, the, you were kind of focusing on American bands and stuff the other day yep. about historical songs. But uh, I, I, now this is a very controversial song, obviously. It's called uh, Sympathy for the Devil of the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people misinterpreted the name of that. I have a book. It's called, uh, I think, The Rolling Stones, The First Ten Years. Uh -huh. And they all they do is point out about in that book that the devil is just an observer in history. Mm. And so they do do a lot of, you know, going through historical events. So I anyway, I, I just... Yeah, I've always found that part. song... Um... I, I guess I never – I've always found it confusing. I, I have to tell you, I have to confess, one of my problems with the Rolling Stones is that I don't understand what the heck they're saying most of the time. I just I, – my ear doesn't quite pick up their, the way they, they, they vocalize, the way they lyricize. That having been said, in that song is that lyric that I do recognize that's so pronounced, at least to me, is where – he says, what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. I mean, that that is the definition of who Satan is, isn't it, right? The great confuser? Yes, sir. I just, I just always thought that interesting, and so I always thought that song was not um, uh, an anti-God song. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing it. Well, no, in the book they explained that basically it's been so misunderstood about the song because of the very name of the song that they're not giving him sympathy. Yeah. They're just saying he's an observer of history and he's letting it go. Yeah. Oh, uh, another aspect of it is when we talk about love songs and breakup songs, could we differentiate between, say, rock and roll and country yeah. and western? Yeah. You know, the uh, they always say what happens when you play country and western music back, you get your dog back and you get your wife back and all those things. But anyway. Uh, Someone one, the other day other... on Twitter said in country music, if you play it backwards, you get your you get your former life back, you get your wife back, you get your car back, you get your property back, you get your dog back. It's not true of socialism. Yep. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I thought oh, that was pretty and, funny. Okay, uh, uh, real quick here. Uh, oh. Thank you very much for Monday when you let me on and ask posing those questions to Brandon Weikert. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. I really appreciate that sure. time. Uh, okay, here's, uh, here's a trivia question. Uh, Michael Nesbitt, what did his mother invent? Liquid paper. There you go. Why you know not? how I know yeah. that? I'll tell you how I know. It's because I told you I saw the Monkees in 86 in their revival tour. He was not on that tour. Um, and the reason he wasn't is he just didn't need the money. <laughs> you know, that's what it came yeah, down to. <laughs> that's what it came down to. Yeah. Texas uh, family, yep. right? Houston, maybe? 
No, I'm not sure on yeah, the origin. Yeah, I think, there, I think no. so. His mom was a uh, was literally a secretary, uh, a clerical assistant type secretary, and that's mm-hmm. how she came to discover. Uh, you know, what, what's the expression? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Is that? I, I think I have something that pretty close. Necessity yep. is the mother of invention. She, the, she's an example of that. So she invented liquid paper, then sold it for fifty million bucks. Uh, nice little profit. Yeah, there. not bad. Okay. Yeah, uh, groups that I've seen multiple times. I've okay. Here's the confession. Okay, I've seen Bob Dylan four times. Huh. Uh, Trying to understand yeah, the lyrics, you just had to keep going back. Well, you know, there's, uh, you know, back when he first started out, he kind of got a lot of money, and he was riding his motorcycle and got into an accident, and oh. it kind of messed up his throat. And that's where you, if you listen to Bob Dylan, like in the song "Lay Lady Lay," it sounds. Uh, I did not fairly... know that. Okay, that's a fair. That's that's a fair defense of him. I did not know that. Yeah, you're right. Some of that earlier stuff is much more easy to understand. You're right about that. Yes. Uh, another one. Uh, musicians are ruined. A, a lot of musicians are ruined by car accidents. Dizzy Gillespie was in a terrible car accident and never played the same afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think uh, Allman from the Allman yeah. Brothers band yeah. didn't he die in a motorcycle accident? I just don't remember. I, a lot of a lot. It, yeah. Well, that that would certainly be yeah not playing the same. And way. then we go into the ones that died in plane accidents. Yeah, that's Boy, a that whole other. Pile is yeah. really really big. Yeah. Uh, Back in, uh, I guess it would have been in the 70s, Celebrity Theater was really going before they had their fire there. But I had seen uh, Jimmy Buffett there multiple times. I don't remember how long it was in The Outlaws. But uh, uh, Bob Dylan, the first time I saw him was down in uh, ASU, or excuse me, the U of A and the McHale Center, and I think it was 78. And, uh, boy, it was, uh, you know, he came out and played all all the songs, and... You know, he came out, there was a little intermission, he came out with his acoustic guitar and played like a Rolling Stone, and the the applause, I don't know how many thousand people that McHale Center, I think it's 10,000 people or so, and, you know, the, the applause over in one side would get real loud, and then it would kind of shift around the stadium and then get real loud in I, another i got to take a quick break. Bear with me, Mike. Bear with me. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Interesting thing about Frank Sinatra, do you like his love songs better, his get-together songs like that, or do you like his uh, breakup crooning ballad songs better? (laughs) Anyway, Mike, you were talking to us about musicians you had seen more than once, Bob Dylan being one of them, starting in Tucson, right? Yes, sir, down at McHale Center, and then at the end of when he played the song like Rolling Stone, it was like everybody's applauding, and then like over at one side it got real loud, and then it sounds kind of shifted around to the other side of the auditorium, and it just kept building and building and building into this crescendo, this din of just one person playing one song. It was really uh, interesting like that, but I'll tell you the best... Yes, it was. And the, but the best time I had seen him, and I think that was in like '96 up at the Phoenix Symphony Hall, mm. and I had I had front row seats on the uh, balcony. Wow! And it was, I don't know. It's I had never sat in the balcony there at Phoenix Symphony Hall, and I swear it is it must be an optical illusion, but it looks like you're only ten feet from the stage. Yeah. It was like. 
Because in some of these other places I've seen him, you know, you need a pair of binoculars yeah, sure. and you can see a dot sure. on the horizon. But he was right there. And I have seen the Rolling Stones twice. I saw him once in, I think it was 83 here at ASU and then about 96 or so, somewhere in that area over in uh, Vegas. But uh, greatest rock and roll band in the world. And uh, But anyway, I've... I, spent a lot of your time but no, number one i really want to thank you for your broadcast you, uh, you do an excellent job well, thank you. and i like the way you mix it up we don't just bog down in covid and all this doom and gloom stuff but uh that deal uh posing these questions of brandon weikert i i don't want to come off as some warmonger or some but you know in the bible it tells us time for war and a time for peace Yep, and we're all watchmen on the wall. You betcha. Some people betcha. out there that were out there warning, because we can see the distant villages burning on the horizon, and we're trying to awake the people and say, this is coming, and all we see is a lot of slumber. You know, and, you know uh, what's interesting about that, Mike? You think about the candidates who were the greatest, um, the great, the greatest peacemakers in our lifetime, who were condemned as the greatest warmongers during election time. You think about it, Nixon. He actually wound down, ultimately, the war in Vietnam. Reagan, he actually didn't start a nuclear war. He ended our confrontation with the Soviet Union by ending the Soviet Union. Donald Trump, peace in the Middle East. What's the old line? Guy said, um, I was told if I voted for Barry Goldwater, we'd expand the war in Vietnam. I did, and we did. All right. I'm Seth Leibson, 602 Anything you want, we'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 